Good afternoon. I'm Carla Hayden. Um, my title has changed now. I'm CEO of the uh, Amy Pratt Free Library, and we really appreciate you joining us here for a very special installment of our Writers Live series. I must tell you, we are all uh, excited to welcome back tonight our special guest, Baltimore's own Laura Lipman. I think she deserves a hand just for that. We are so honored tonight to be part of the book launch celebration for her new mystery novel, Life Sentences. And based on the early reviews, it sounds like it's going to be another bestseller and critically acclaimed novel. Now, I have to, uh, full disclosure, I am a mystery book lover. And so I'm very eager to read this new novel and hear her talk about it tonight. But before we um, get started, I just have a few things I'd like to um, ask you to consider. And one is to look at uh, the library's newsletter, uh, Compass, which has a lot of good programs in it. And um, we also have our website that now has podcasts. This event will be podcast, prattlibrary.org. And at your seat, you'll find a comment card. And if you could complete it or include your email address, we'd like to start um, corresponding with you, but also uh, doing more for the environment. We're trying to uh, cut down on some of the paper um, activities, and so we would also just, we would just email you about exciting events coming up, nothing else. And just outside of the door, we hope you get a chance to look at, just briefly and maybe come back, uh, a new exhibit that just opened, Golden Legacy. It's 65 years of golden books. And I'm sure most of you in this room remember the l pokey little puppy, Dr. Dan, and a whole host of characters. And we are one of the um, few libraries that is hosting this exhibit of original art. And in, in some of the uh, illustrations, you can actually see where they actually made the um, production and put the uh, words in there, so we, we hope you get a chance to look at that. And we also included, um, and just to let you know, on Thursday, March the 12th, you can hear Peter uh, Schechter discuss his new mystery novel, Pipeline, a novel of suspense, and then our annual City Lit Festival, Saturday, April 18th, and we will have uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, here, and we're really excited about that and a number of them. And we just wanted you to know that it's through the generosity of donors like you, this sounds like MPT, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Who have helped us, but we, we really appreciate that. And so I now want to get on to the, the main part, which is our special guest. And I must say, she is um, a special supporter of the Pratt Library. And many of you know that for 20 years, Laura Lippman worked as a reporter, 12 of those years with the Baltimore Sun. And this is when I first met her. I had accepted a job here in Baltimore more than f about 15, 14 years ago, and Laura was assigned to interview me. <laughs> One of those interviews where they say, your first year, and what happened? And it was, though, a definite blessing, because during the interview, she told me about her upcoming new book, her first mystery novel. And I was hooked because I was a mystery fan. And I said, boy, you're going to be great because you've got that name, Laura Lippman. I can just see it on the cover, you know. It's just perfect name reiteration. I mean, geez. 
And that book was Baltimore Blues, the first Tess Monahan mystery novel. And as a newcomer to the city, and I've talked to a few people earlier who said that that was, those novels really helped because when you don't know Baltimore, you get such a sense of place. And so you learn about your city and you reminisce about your city. So that was a runaway bestseller, critically acclaimed hit, and it was nominated for a Seamus uh, for the best first novel. And then, like many of you and people all over the country and internationally, you couldn't wait for the next one and what Tess was going to do. And then what came next were more bestsellers and award-winning books and short stories, including Charm City, Butcher's Hill, and Big Trouble, The Sugar House, In a Strange City, Every Secret Thing, By a Spider's Thread, and To the Power of Three. I'm a librarian. I can just do this. <laughs> She's been awarded and nominated for almost every respected literary award out there, the Edgar, the Anthony, the, the Agatha, Nero Wolf, Gumshoe, and the Barry Awards. She's also been nominated for other prizes in the crime fiction field, including the McCavity, and she was the first ever recipient of the Mayor's Prize for Literary Excellence and the first genre writer recognized as Author of the Year by the Maryland Library System. And the best part for so many of us is that those books, some of those books were set in Baltimore. And our great city, like the investigator, Tess, is the central character in each of her books. Now, another character that some of you may know is the Pratt Library, a reoccurring character, mentioned several times in her novels, and we greatly appreciate it. Now, here's one of my favorite passages from the award-winning In a Strange City. On page 104, and uh, time makes you put on glasses. <laughs> I will start. It starts chapter 10. The Enoch Pratt Free Libraries always lifted Tessa's spirits, and she was in need of a lift when she walked through the door, its doors later that day. Well, she goes on. <laughs> but that's not the best part. A few pages down on 108, our heroine, Tess, is here at the Pratt Library, and she's trying to really talk up a staff member at the information desk. She's trying to get into a special area that you needed special permission to get, and it reads, of course, of course, and this, this librarian, and, and some of them uh, can be that way. This is not, this is my thing. She's trying to get this librarian to help her. And he's saying, no, no, you know, there are other people. You can't go in there. Of course, of course, Tess said, trying to smooth things over. I know I'm asking for special treatment, and I assume someone in administration would have to make the call. Think of it as an appeal through the court system. Who has the final say? Our director, Carla Hayden, I suppose. <laughs> well, you can imagine. You can imagine as a librarian. I'm th that's like you died and gone to heaven to be in a book, your name in a book for a good thing. And then as a mystery writer, a reader and lover who's just reading the book and do that, I almost call my mother because she, she knows page 108, all of her friends, everything. It's just, you know, it's just wonderful. So we are really all honored to be that. But she's a supporter of libraries, literacy, and literature everywhere. And that's why last year during Mr. Pratt's bicentennial birthday celebration, we made sure that her name was on a special birthday cake made by Food Network's uh, Duff Goldman. 
and actually had one of Laura's. So every year we're excited for a new release and her new novel is, and I hope most of you have it today. And also I just want to put a little shout out for Mystery Loves Company, um, the bookstore. I think they deserve a hand. It's not easy. Uh, being an independent bookseller these days, so we appreciate this being here. So without further ado, please welcome back to the Pratt, Baltimore's own, Laura Lipman. Oh, that was just lovely. Thank you, Carla. Um, I think actually the passage in the, that Carla just read goes on to say that Carla shops at um, Kitty's bookstore, and Tess tries to use that as a way in. Um, sometimes when I get up to talk about a book, I can say, the idea came at this moment in this place. I could certainly do that two years ago when I was talking about a book called What the Dead Know. I could tell people specifically on this certain day in April, um, I was driving to a baseball game in Washington, and I drove by Wheaton Plaza, and I thought about this old crime this book, This Year Life Sentences, had so many different inspirations. And if there was a common theme to these different inspirations, it was about the way that memory can deceive you. Um, it begins again, and this is really hard for a Baltimore Oriole loyalist, but all of my stories seem to go back to Washington baseball. And it's what happens when you, you know, marry outside of the family, you marry a Washington senator fan. Um, my husband has this really charming story. It is the greatest story in the world. When he was a little boy growing up in the D.C. suburbs, he loved the Washington senators. I was one time at a writing retreat with a bunch of writers, and we were all getting up and announcing what our secret talents were. And my husband's secret talent was that he could recite the Washington Senators' batting order against right-handed and left-handed pitching from memory. <laughs> and so he just loved the Senators. And he had this story that he told for years. And it's one of those stories that we all tell, we all have, which is it's, it's what I call a first date story. It's a story, it's charming, it makes you look good, it's a little self-deprecating, but it's, and it's just polished. It's such a great story. And this was his story about the Washington Senators and the only Jewish player, Mike Epstein, whom he loved. And he decided one day when he was in fourth grade that he was going to smuggle a transistor radio into school. And he took it down to the bathroom, and he's there listening to his contraband radio, and it's opening day, and Mike Epstein is up, and it's the bottom of the ninth, and the senators need him to get a hit, and the bases are loaded, and he's... he's batting against Catfish Hunter. And um, my husband remembers that he, he said a prayer. And he said, please, God, please, if you let Mike Epstein get a hit, I will never again complain about going to Hebrew school. <laughs> and Mike Epstein hits a grand slam. <laughs> Flash forward to 2005, for complicated reasons, my husband decided he was going to write an essay about this event in his life. There's a few problems. Mike Epstein's never hit a home run on opening day, <laughs> much less a grand slam. There is no opening day game in which Mike Epstein faces Catfish Hunter. There is absolutely no 
opening day game that begins to correlate to this story. And one of our friends, who's more of a baseball historian, may have found the game where Epstein did hit a home run in the ninth, but it's, it's nothing like the story my husband told. And, you know, there was nothing devious about this story. It, he never intended to tell this essentially false story over and over again. And yet he not only told this story, it, it defined him on some level. This is a story about who, it's like his, his, his origin story in a way to borrow from graphic novels. And it was false. And I found that fascinating because he was so sure of the story until he started to report it. Back in newsrooms, they used to have um, a saying that something was too good to check out. And (laughs) this was one of those stories. It was too good to check out because when you checked it out, um, it it didn't work. I'd had a long fascination with memory anyway. I'm one of the few people who's pretty cheerful about how bad my memory is. And a lot of you met me tonight. There was a reception beforehand, and you'd met me before, and sometimes I didn't remember your name. There are people in this room. I mean, they know, so there's no reason for me not to tell it. Fifteen minutes after I met them, I couldn't remember their names. But what I could remember is I could remember the stories they told me. This is how my brain organizes things according to narrative. And so what I tell everyone is, if you see me on the street in Baltimore, and apparently, unfortunately, a lot of people do see me stalking around in my old Baltimore Colts jacket, (laughs) mumbling to myself, um, and you say, hi, and I'll probably stare at you blankly. And you might say, I'm so-and-so. But if you say, we met in such and such a situation, and we talked about, I will remember all of this. I had this exercise that I attempted to teach students when I was teaching writing. And it never really went over because it's too long-term to interest most young people. But one of the things I found out after years and years and years of fitful journal keeping is that when I wrote about emotion, it was just a blank. As a matter of fact, what was kind of embarrassing when I went back and looked at my old journals is if you write... I'm very lonely and depressed. Except for the handwriting, I can't tell the difference between when I'm 15 and when I'm 45. You know, it's just, wow, there's been no growth there at all. But if, <laughs> but if I kept notes about very tangible, concrete events, I found the emotion was there even if I hadn't written it down. And I could remember days in which I was exceptionally happy because I had recorded the facts of the day. And I run a blog called The Memory Project where I, from time to time, I throw out an exercise. And just this past Sunday, I'm in the car, and the song Maggie Mae comes on. And I could, bad memory, remember, I have a wretched memory. Um, Stephanie, how am I doing? (laughs) Sitting next to Brooke and Faye. Did I get it right? Did I, oh, three for three. Um, um, I could remember where I was the first time I heard that song. I could remember exactly how old I was, 
or why we're there, or I can't even remember what the family car looked like. I mean, I can infer, I can deduce what car I was riding in because I know what car my family had about that era, but I don't remember that. That's not in the memory. What I remember is sitting in a car, and for some reason my parents have briefly allowed the radio to be on something (laughs) semi-cool, which was usually just not allowed, and this song Maggie Mae comes on, and we are driving between Atlanta and Marietta, Georgia. We're going to see very old friends. And I just remember everything about this afternoon. And then I started thinking, okay, what other songs do I have that same relationship with? What other memories do I have of writing in the car and listening to a song? I remember being very young and being driven to the Baltimore Museum of Art where I took art lessons and listening to this song Don't sleep in the subways, darling. (laughs) Some of the younger people are like looking at me like, what? (laughs) And I I was fascinated. And I also remember where I was when the song Hello, It's Me by Todd Rundgren was in very heavy rotation on the radio and my family was making one of the many trips we made every year down to Atlanta where we had family. And what I realized for me is what all those songs had in common is that they were stories. They were elliptical. There were a lot of blanks that I had to fill in, especially with Maggie Mae. I had no idea what was going on in that song. It's like, take your daddy's cue. Was he a pool player? I don't really know what's going on. But, And that's how it worked for me. I was So I threw this out there. And the reason I'm mentioning it, because um, someone who might be memorable to people as a former byline in the Baltimore Sun, Fern Shen, came onto the blog, The Memory Project, and she wrote about hearing the song Penny Lane when she is 11 years old. And if I were teaching a writing class today, I would read you know, what Fern wrote. It's just incredible because it does everything you would ask someone to do in a quick writing exercise. It's beautifully written. It's filled with detail. And she, you know, it was clear that this just dredged up all these memories for Fern. So here you have this lifelong interest in memory. And this one thing I like to claim for myself is um, I've had very few, really, achievements on the domestic front, but I have won this one battle, which is in my household, and this applies to everyone, we no longer argue on the basis of memory. (laughs) When we're having an argument and it descends into, but I remember it this way and I remember it this way, we cut it off. And this is all because of a really vital, important argument we had about what was written on a sweatshirt that was left in a cab in Dublin. You know, one of those really important issues in a marriage. And we went round and around and around and around. And, you know, each person began drawing their version out. Like, this is why my memory would be right. And they'd explain it and, and go on and on. And, and we finally let it go. And a couple of weeks later, my husband was organizing a a photo album, and there was a photo of me in the missing sweatshirt, and we could see what it said. And, I mean, I'm not gloating, but I was right. (laughs) And seriously, I'm not gloating. Because when I pointed this out, it was like, okay, fine, you're right. It's like, no, that's really not what I'm trying to get to, is I want you to think about how sure you were that you were right at the moment we had the discussion. I want you to think about how fallible 
your memory is, how fervently you argued, all the details you offered about why you must be right, and it turns out they're all wrong. And it's my assertion that we all must be doing this. You know, and at this point, I just, you know, I just hold my memory up as an incredibly flawed vessel. And, you know, I don't claim anything on the basis of memory. If you challenge my memory, I'll fold, like, a house of cards. I'll be like, yeah, you know, you're right. I'm probably wrong. That's how I remember it. I'm probably wrong, you know. And I, I don't meet many people who are as willing to do that. Um, so this lifelong interest in memory... I decided I would write about a memoir writer because I love to read memoirs. And I think I love to read memoirs in part because I know I'll never write one. (laughs) Obviously, there's some good reasons why I shouldn't. (laughs) And there are other reasons as well. And so I found myself writing about a writer. And I was working on the book and working on the book and going through revisions and going through revisions. And at some point, my agent said to me very gently, you do realize that people are going to think this is you. And I hadn't really thought that. And I was, as a matter of fact, I was appalled. I was horrified because I think the main character in this book, Cassandra Fallows, who's a very successful memoir writer, I think she's kind of unlikable. I think she's interesting. I think she's good company for the course of a book, but she's not someone I would pick as one of my closest friends. And so I said to my, my agent, oh, there, there are so many differences and she said, well, what are they? And I said, well, um, she's a year older. Um, she's, you know, not as tall as I am. Like, and, you know, and then there's this really key, key fact is she grew up just west of Forest Park Avenue, whereas I grew up just east of Forest Park Avenue. So, you know, at that point, I realized that I was inviting people to think that I am Cassandra Fallows. And I I kind of accept that as part of the bargain. That's part of the bargain of being a novelist, is people are going to read this and look for the parts of the story that are me. And I know what's true, and I know what's not true, but, you know, it's not for me to tell you how to read this book in some ways. Um, Long before we had the Internet and hyperlinks and all this thing that focuses on interactivity. One of the reasons I love being a crime writer is because I've always seen it as essentially interactive. Um, People who read a lot of crime fiction are engaging with the text in a very active, lively way. They're really into it. And I've been doing this now for 12 years. This is my 14th novel. I'd been doing it for a while before I figured out that my readers, in some ways, are smarter than I am. They're often better read than I am. They've often read a lot more crime fiction than I have. And they've, there's a certain reader out there. I probably, there's, that reader is probably represented in this room tonight. They have seen it all. They have seen every twist. They have read every kind of puzzle. I can't surprise that person. I just can't. There are people who pick up the book, What the Dead Know, this is literally true, and figure it out on page three. And this is the person that I write for. I write for my smartest reader, and I think, okay, you figured it out on page three. How do I keep you in the game? 
And what I hope, and it's really up for y'all to decide if I do this, but what I hope, what I try to do is come up with a story where you may figure out what happened, you may figure out who did it, you can't figure out why it happened or why they did it. And if you want to know that, you'll stick with me to the last page. If you don't want to know why, then I've actually kind of failed. I recently got an email. I really love this email last week. Dear Ms. Lippman, I have just finished reading Another Thing to Fall. It was so boring, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I kept reading, hoping to find that it might get interesting. But no, you triumphed. You, you triumphed. It was boring all the way to the end. <laughs> Regards, and the person signed her name. And so I wrote back and, and said, thank you very much for writing, which I'm sure she found that boring too. But, um, and I, I found this so amusing, I had to tell friends about it. And they said, what are you going to do next? I said, well, you know, it's really hard to be consistently boring on every page of a book if you really think about it. So I said, the only way I think I can top myself is now to write a book in which I bore people to death, <laughs> in which someone actually keels over in the middle of the book. So that's just a little aside. Um, I, I mean, I can read a little section from this book. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about, this happened right before I came out. There's an internet site called the Page 69 Test. And it's also the page 99 test. And it's based on two axioms about writing. One is that page 69 reflects the essence of a book. If you open any book to page 69, it should reflect the essence of the book. And the other um, is a, apparently a saying attributed to Ford, Maddox Ford, that page 99 should tell you the innate quality of a book. And I was asked to put life sentences to this test. And it was interesting to me. When I went to 69, what I found was that it was an excessively feminine passage. And it's not that I'm being sexist. I'm not saying that men would not want to read this. or that they. I said, I, said, I genuinely don't know. I, you know. The question is, would someone keep reading? after they read this passage. I said, you know, I really, I said, I think women would want to keep reading this book if they were exposed to page 69. I honestly don't know what men would think. So I'm actually going to read this as a test, and I'm, you know, I'm just really curious about what people think. Is this something that interests you? By the way, I don't believe that the page 69 test is sacred and that it by any means holds up, but it's interesting to test it. Um... I have to start a teeny bit before 69, or we'd start in the middle of a sentence. Um, the main character of this book is Cassandra Fallas, and the central story of her life, the story that she tells over and over again, almost compulsively, Cassandra is pretty hard to shut up, as it turns out, is that when she was 10 years old, her father, a white classics professor at Johns Hopkins University, left her mother for an African-American woman he met during the 68 riots when he kept her from coming to harm. It was hard trying to come to terms with the fact that her father had such a huge and ruling passion, much larger than any Cassandra had ever known. Sure, she knew what it was like to be swept away in the early part of a love affair, 
But she was amazed by those people who never seemed to abandon that wildness, that craziness. Would it have been easier if her father's passion had been for her mother or more difficult? In some ways, she was glad that her father's big love was for someone other than her mother because she at least had her mother to keep her company. Around her father and her stepmother, Annie, she had been lonely, the odd girl out, Especially as a teenager, she couldn't help feeling that they spent their time with her wishing she would go away so they could have more sex. Of course, teenagers think the whole world is sex all the time. But even now, as an adult with two marriages behind her, Cassandra still believed that her father's sexual passion with Annie had an unusually long lifespan. If Annie left a room for even a moment, her father looked lost. When she returned, the relief that swept over his face was almost painful to see. He was crazy about her. That's the kind of line that her father would have redlined in an essay, as vague, imprecise, and overwrought. Yet it was true in his case, and Cassandra didn't have a clue why. Annie was beautiful, yes. The mild flaws of her face, the space between the front teeth, the apple roundness, the heavy brows that she never tended, balancing out the cartoonish perfection of her body. Sweet, too. Not unintelligent, but not sharp. This, more than anything, had bothered Cassandra then and now. If her father, for all his snobbery, could choose a woman of ordinary intelligence, then what were the implications for his daughter? After an exceedingly awkward adolescence, Cassandra had grown into a reasonably attractive woman, not necessarily pretty, but sexy and appealing. Yet whenever she visited her father, she was reminded that the qualities that he said that he had taught her to value, intelligence, intelligence, quickness, had nothing to do with the woman he declared the love of his life. The test of a first-rate mind, her father often said, quoting F. Scott Fitzgerald, was to hold two opposing thoughts simultaneously without going insane. Cassandra looked at herself, she looked at Annie, and she concluded that her father had a first-rate mind. Are the guys still in? <laughs> um, <laughs> now, come on, don't, under, don't underrate them, not just because I mentioned sex. I mean, <laughs> that works. There, there's a lot of sex in this book. Um, I mean, that's a, you know, it's a very interesting test, and I just sort of wanted to do it live without any planning. Um, the page 99 test for this book is utterly useless, because if you turn to page 99, you find that you're on one of the books within the book. There are excerpts from Cassandra's memoir within this book, and I don't think that they're the essence of the book at all. And when I was asked to participate in the 90, page 99 test, I wrote back and said, no, I mean, with all due respect to Ford Maddox Ford, page 99 does not define the essence of my book. I said, page 98, however, is great. <laughs> you know, I feel like a hypocrite because I love memoirs and I love to read them, and yet I would never write one. And sometimes as someone trained as a journalist, I'm often troubled by them. But I really do love them, and I read them in great number. I was asked to write about my 10 favorite memoirs for the Guardian newspaper of London in an article that will be published next week. 
And so I just ran to, I actually have a special shelf of memoirs, and I think it's um, relevant that that is a shelf of books. It's one of the few shelves of books in, in my bedroom. Um, I love memoirs so that they're the books I often go to for comfort reads late at night. So I put together my list of 10, and I looked at it, and the thing I was really struck by is that I don't like sensational memoirs. I mean, I think the thing that strikes me about memoir is that it can do what novelists don't get to do very often, is it can write about the most ordinary and quiet lives with great power. I, I didn't have a single addiction memoir in my top ten, unless you count Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain, <laughs> which has very glancing references to his problems with heroin and speed. I mean, really, I think in, a, in an entire book there are maybe eight sentences about his drug habit. Um, it's, I don't think it's well-known anymore. Bourdain used to be a crime novelist. And years ago, before he sort of broke big, I met him at a conference in England. And Kitchen Confidential had just come out, and he was very apologetic. And he said, look, I'm sorry. I know I was really mean about Baltimore. In Kitchen, He is. He's really mean about Baltimore. I mean, it's vicious. And he said, I'm really, really sorry for that. You need to understand that when I was in Baltimore, I was still addicted to heroin, and I really could not find heroin. And the man who would become my husband said, you are the most incompetent drug addict I've ever lived. He basically needed to walk four blocks west. But... I mean, one of the things I love about Kitchen Confidential is that it's not about his addiction. It's about his love of cooking, and it's actually a fascinating book, and it's completely nonlinear, which is unusual in a memoir. It jumps around. And at the end of it, though, the thing that I love best is that Anthony Bourdain, better than any memoir writer I've seen, goes to the heart of paradox, of the paradox in memoir. And he writes, writing anything is treasonous. He goes on to say, when you write about a memory, you decrease it, you lessen it. And every story I've told in this book, I've sort of taken away from myself. And I I just thought that was a wonderful insight. And I think it's one of my, you know, it's part of my love-hate affair with the memoir, is I do think on some level it's treasonous, and that's why I won't write one. I talked about this book having... Many, many, many seeds. Strangely, probably the primary one came on a book tour two years ago. And I was out talking about a book called What the Dead Know. And anyone from the area recognizes the fact that the story of What the Dead Know was clearly inspired by the Lion Sisters of Wheaton Plaza. I mentioned it at the top of the talk. That was one case where I could say instantly, this is where the idea came from. And... I was asked when I was traveling in the area, not so much out of Maryland, but if I was in the Baltimore, D.C. area, people would say, inevitably, did you call the family and ask for their permission to write this book? And I would say, every time I was asked, there are two answers to that. And one of them is about me as a very nice person, and one of them is about me as a not very nice person. And the first part of the answer is, yes, I know where they are. Yes, I'm a former reporter. It would have been easy for me to call them 
and talk to them about what I wanted to do and explain to them that I hoped that it would be a story that would really enhance people's understandings of what the victims of crimes go through and how many victims there are of a crime. But I said, you know, that wasn't, wouldn't really be for them. That would be for me. I mean, I would be seeking their benediction so I would feel better about myself. And the best they would ever feel is kind of neutral. They wouldn't be happier for having spoken to me, and they might be sadder, so I chose not to call them. So the second reason I didn't call them is because I don't need anyone's permission to write about anything. I get to write about whatever I want, and I write about what interests me, and I'm not going to cede any territory. Uh, you can imagine this answer didn't go over well with some people. They didn't like it. And I thought a lot about that because I realized that we live in a culture that has taught us that our stories do have value. I mean, if we live in a culture where Monica Lewinsky can be given however much money I don't even remember anymore because she had an affair with the President of the United States, we are saying certain stories have value. And when states, certain states, tell felons, you can't sell stories that relate to your crimes, you're not allowed to profit off your crimes. Again, we're saying these stories have value. So I can see the confusion. The final piece of this book was inspired right before I started to write. I was doing an event with another author, a novelist like me, and we began talking about one of my favorite memoirs, which I won't name. And this other novelist said to me, you know, I'm in that book. Really? He said, uh, yeah, I was the boyfriend of the woman who wrote that book, and I was friends with some of the other people in the book, and I think I came off really badly. And it was like, ooh, literary gossip. <laughs> and um, I went running home and tore open the volume in question. See, I'm being punished for even admitting I like literary gossip. And I found a page and a half that, even with this information, struck me as the most utterly neutral and bland, objective page and a half. And that was the moment where I thought, if there's anything worse than being written about in a memoir, maybe it's being a minor character. <laughs> in someone else's life. And that was the final board that I had to nail into place before I wrote Life Sentences. Life Sentences is about a memoir writer who has run out of life. She has nothing left to write about. A chance moment of television viewer viewing um, informs her that someone she knew a long time ago was once suspected of a horrible crime, was once suspected of killing her own child, but it could never be proven. She comes back to Baltimore, determined to find this woman and to write a book that will be part memoir, part true crime reporting. And the closer she gets to finding her and the closer she gets to finding out the truth about what happened, the more she realizes how many people are desperate for her not to get to this information and how much it will cost her and how much she's going to have to admit about her own flawed memories if she decides to pursue it. Thank you so much for coming out. This is great.